Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Approaches to Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs in the Netherlands and Australia. Uh, hello, everyone, um, and welcome to uh, this evening session, where I am from. Uh, my name is Anthony Morgan, and I'm the research manager for the Australian Institute of Criminology's Serious and Organised Crime Research Laboratory. Uh, before I begin, um, and as is customary in Australia, I'd like to acknowledge the tra traditional custodians of the land on which I join you from here in Ngunnawal country uh, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Uh, I am very excited, as I was just telling my um, uh, the, the panel members, um, I'm very excited to be moderating this session uh, today. Uh, it's actually an extension in, in many respects from an earlier panel session on understanding biker crime. Uh, so this evening we're talking about approaches to outlaw motorcycle gangs, or OMCGs, as I think we'll all refer to them, in the Netherlands and Australia. Um, I'm especially excited to hear from our Dutch colleagues um, as their work has had a, a major influence over our work in Australia. Um, and we were supposed to hear them speak in Australia before COVID uh, scuppered our plans. So it's nice to hear them today. We have three presentations today um, or for this session. Um, and so we're going to allow 15 minutes per presentation uh, before we move to questions and answers. Uh, I'd encourage everyone to post their questions into the Q&A as we're going um, and as our, our speakers are presenting. And we will do our best to cover everything when, we, um, when the speakers are finished at the end. Okay, with no further delay, uh, our first speaker is Tun van Rutenberg. Uh, Tun is a postdoctoral researcher at the Netherlands Institute for the Study of Crime and Law Enforcement, and he'll be speaking about raising barriers to outlaw motorcycle gangs in the Netherlands. Over to you, Tim. Thanks a lot, Anthony. Um, hi, hi to you all. Uh, indeed, my name is Tun van Rutenberg. I'm a researcher at the Netherlands Institute for the Study of Crime and Law Enforcement in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. And I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to this occasion, to this presentation, because although we all look forward to attend in-person conferences again, I'm very happy to be able to present my finished PhD research to the, to the whole world, actually, from my own home office. So a very special occasion, and thanks all for, uh, uh, for joining. Um, to, to, very shortly, to very shortly introduce the topic of my research, I would like to take you well, back more than 40 years, or take you back 40, year, 40 years back in time. Because when focusing on today's problem with outlaw motorcycle gangs, one might forget, at least in the Netherlands, that the problem is not new, in the sense that in the 1970s in the Netherlands already, the Hells Angels uh, uh, caused already some public uh, disorder in the city center. And it was also already in this period uh, where public prosecutors were discussing the possibility of changing the laws so that it would become more easy to ban clubs such as the Hells Angels, which is also a measure that is a, a topic of a lively debate in present times in the Netherlands as well. And it's very interesting to see how the city council in the 1970s coped with the problem of Hells Angels. That is, the, the city council decided to build a clubhouse for the Hells Angels, which was proposed as a strategy to move the members outside the city center and also to provide them with a place of their own. And on this sheet, you can see the actual clubhouse. And um, I'm showing you this clubhouse because it, because it's, uh, it has a very symbolic meaning for our understanding of the Dutch approach to OMCGs. Because, because when we quickly fast forward to present times, the clubhouse still plays a crucial role in the approach. 
However, today, local governments go to great lengths to prevent the settlement of clubhouses or actually close clubhouses. In other words, where the clubhouse in the 70s was taken as a means to cope with the problem, the problem is now tackled by actually preventing or closing clubhouses. And the aim of my study, of my PhD research, which was finished last year, uh, was actually quite simple, namely to understand ex and explain this 180-degree turn in the Dutch approach to agro motorcycle gangs. <clears throat> and I won't talk too much about my methodology, but uh, here you can see that I interviewed uh, 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 76 respondents, people mostly working for the uh, uh, Dutch police, local governments, mayors, uh, people working from the, for the public prosecution service, and so on. And besides that, I also analyzed a lot of, well, both internal and uh, openly available policy documentation to give a very broad overview of how the approach to outlaw motorcycle gangs in the Netherlands has changed from the 1970s to, uh, to present times. And in my, in my attempts to understand uh, this 180-degree turn in the Dutch approach to outlaw motorcycle gangs, I found a very interesting lead in the word or concept of barrier, which is translated from the Dutch word barrière. Because when reading through the openly available documents which uh, about the, the Dutch approach of outlaw motorcycle gangs, you can see that, uh, uh, well, you can easily notice that the approach is built on a so-called barrier model and the idea of raising barriers. And I, well, I just posted here some, some examples of, 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 of uh, uh, citations from Dutch policy uh, uh, documentation. Um, you can see, for instance, that many aspects barriers are raised, which make it harder for OMGs to commit criminal, activity, uh, criminal activities. And what is interesting is that the word barrier wasn't chosen, chosen randomly in the context of uh, the approach of the OMCGs in the Netherlands. It actually expresses and fits within a wider practice by which law enforcement agencies, both state and non-state agencies, try to raise barriers to various forms of organized crime. And you will notice that the word barrier is often used in the context of organized crime as well. Uh, the idea of raising barriers to crime expresses a preventative turn uh, in criminal in, in crime policies in the Netherlands that dates back from to 1985. And especially since the, since the 90s uh, uh, and after the turn of the millennium, uh, Dutch government has adopted a situational crime prevention model aimed at preventing organized crime through a, a multi-agency approach. And under this approach, uh, the focus is not particularly on the offender itself, but on the criminal activity and situation opportunities for crime. Crime, in other words, is investigated as a logistic process, which insights are formulated and summarized in a barrier model, which then again is said to help various partners, both public and uh, private agencies, to raise barriers to the opportunities for a, for a particular form of crime. And although it's very important to say here that, that besides this preventative approach, also, the police and public prosecution service still play a huge and important crucial role in fighting crime by means of the criminal law enforcement. From the, for the remainder of this presentation, I will focus mainly on these administrative barriers raised to outlaw motorcycle gangs. As said, in, the, in 2012, the Dutch government launched a national and multi-agency approach to outlaw motorcycle gangs. And to, to do so, uh, to fight the crime uh, of these outlaw motorcycle gangs, 
they, they more or less copy-pasted the idea of raising barriers or, or developing a barrier model and copy-pasted it, this idea to, to also focus and to fight the problem of outdoor mode cycle gains. And this is interesting because in the present case, as you all know, we're not fighting a particular form of crime. We are actually fighting, well, at least trying to uh, uh, fight a phenomenon, uh, a phenomenon, a group of people involved in, in various forms of crime. Um, in other words, policy-wise, you could say that the outlaw motorcycle gang, at least in the Netherlands itself, itself was taken as a, as a logistic or criminal logistic process. Um, and in the Netherlands, the mayor and the local government uh, plays a huge role in raising barriers to these outlaw motorcycle gangs, for instance, by closing or uh, preventing clubhouses. And here you can see an example, two examples of two, in, two uh, citations from two interviews I did. Uh, one with a mayor, one with a civil servant. And to just give you an idea is that, well, uh, a mayor told me that when OMCG members since 2012 asked for a permit, for instance, to build a clubhouse or to, I don't know, to, to, uh, yeah, to, to use an area as their clubhouse, he says, well, we stop work, work cooperating with this. And when we have a title, which is a judicial title, when I have a means to, to cancel this, this permit application, I will do it. And so in any way, try to defend, uh, to make sure that these members don't come in my municipality. Uh, often local governments have the ability to use the local development plan to cancel out clubhouses in their municipality. Also, besides the clubhouses, which, as I told you in the beginning of this introduction, has a really symbolic meaning to this whole uh, approach since 1970s, uh, there's also been uh, uh, well, a focus on uh, events, which means that at the start, the Minister of Security and Justice said, well, uh, to put it in my own words, we shouldn't facilitate, the local government shouldn't facilitate by means of uh, providing a permit again to events uh, organized by an outlaw motorcycle game. And here I talked uh, another citation from a civil servant working for a municipality who said, well, uh, asking to him why why should we why should we stop uh, facilitating these events? He said, "Well, you know, this could indeed be a good idea to to give them an event, but no, this is exactly what the minister said. We shouldn't make them part of society anymore. So we cancel out these events in the municipality. So this is another example of a barrier raised to uh, uh, to these outlaw motorcycle games. A third example is that um, in, in, in recent times, but also uh, like more at the start of the uh, approach since 2012, numerous municipalities adopted like a new rule within their local ordinance to make sure and to try uh, banning the colors, the mostly leather jackets worn by the uh, members, to ban these from, 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 from the city center most of the times to ban these members uh, from wearing collars in, in pubs or restaurants. And also more recently, very, uh, a lot of municipalities adopted like this local ordinance rule stating that it's prohibited to wear collars uh, uh, of banned outlaw motorcycle gangs, such as the banditos uh, in, in, uh, in, a, in a public domain. And it's an interesting example. Last week, a former president of the banditos uh, chapter in the southern parts of Netherlands was sentenced to 80 hours community service because this member, uh, 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 because the bandidos was banned by civil law and this member still continued to wear a cap and a t-shirt with signs of, uh, of the club. 
So this is an extra dimension now that some of the clubs are banned by uh, civil law. And the final example, uh, which I will present to you today, before going through some, some recent developments, is that also since 2012, the Dutch government is trying to look for ways to, well, more or less divert members from certain uh, occupations. For instance, uh, divert members uh, from working for civil service, uh, but also we have some members who worked, who works, uh, who work, sorry, all worked uh, uh, for the for the uh, for defense, like for military uh, service. And uh, also, besides the civil service, you, the Dutch government seeking cooperation with the private private security se uh, uh, sector to also divert these members from this from this sector. So. In this way, we try to, we, the Dutch government is, is raising barriers to professional, to labor. Already coming to the final sheet of my presentation uh, is that it's in more recent, um, uh, more recent time, the Dutch government and more particularly the, particularly the Supreme, the Public Prosecution Service um, uh, successfully banned a number of outlaw motorcycle gangs, among them the most well known or largest clubs such as the Bandidos or No Surrender or Satudara. Some of these uh, uh, civil bans are still pending. So not all members, not all cases have, have gone through the Supreme Court yet. Um, so it's still a lively discussion uh, today. Um, and also based on recent, recent openly available and yearly reports of the, uh, uh, of the approach by the Dutch government, you can see that the number in recent times, the number of clubhouses and OMC-related events decreased over time. And also the members, partly because of the ban, I, I, I assume, are less visible in the public domain. Also, the, the government list notes that there's less public disorder related to OMCGs. Again, I posted it as an effect, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's recent development as argued by the Dutch government, so it hasn't been really researched in a more quantitative or uh, uh, scientific way. Um, the, at the flip side of this is that it became also a little bit more difficult now that people or members don't come in, in the public domain that much. It's more difficult for the police to uphold an um, intelligence position on the phenomenon. And also, as was mentioned in the previous panel on, the, on, the, on this topic, that in recent times there, were, there are, well, there's an upsurge of new, more fluid clubs, more street gang, like uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs, also called the Nike gangs, for instance, in Australia, um, or, or Brotherhood. So there's a more fluid, the biker scene is more fluid than it was 10, 20 years ago. Also, you don't see that much a decrease of members since the approach, although I should have mentioned the approach in the, uh, the number of 2012 also. But since 2012, the number of members have, have uh, increased and now it became a little bit more stable. On a more general note, and then I will start talking, uh, is that it's interesting to think of the idea that since 2012, the barrier model was more or less copy-pasted to a phenomenon, while, as I told you, barrier models based on crime scripting is usually focusing on specific forms of, of crime. And so it's interesting to see and to think of is raising barriers to a phenomenon for instance, by, by closing clubhouses or preventing events, is it the same as preventing crime? Does it really help to uh, uh, does it really help members to stop 
uh, being involved in crime or prevent them from, from being involved in crime. And this is still a question that is answered, uh, unanswered in, uh, today. Also a question that is often remains unanswered in the literature is the question how members themselves respond to measures taken and how they are affected personally by the sometimes far-reaching measures. And this is why, uh, together with Schauke van Deuren and Robbie Rox, I'm currently interviewing members of an outlaw motorcycle gang in the Netherlands. Well, and I hope to, to present on that next year. Um, but for now, answering and trying to answering the question on what is the effect of the Dutch approach, I would like to give the floor to Arjan Blokland, who recently, and also I think for the first time, estimated the effects of the Dutch uh, multi-agency approach to outlaw biking crime. So thanks uh, for your attention and uh, good luck, Arjan. Uh, and thank you, Tone, for the introduction. Uh, uh, telling uh, the audience about the, uh, the Dutch uh, whole of government approach as it was implemented in 2012. And indeed, together with uh, uh, Christian Clement from Aalborg University, uh, we uh, set out to do a study to see if we could estimate uh, the effects of the, uh, of, of the whole of government approach that the, the Dutch government has taken uh, towards uh, OMCGs in, in the Netherlands. So basically the research question for our paper uh, was what is the effect of the whole of government approach uh, if we're looking at the registered criminal behavior of a Dutch OMCG and Dutch support club members. And as, as Tone was saying, the, the whole of government approach was all about raising barriers and also deterrence. It has a, a, a zero tolerance element in it. Um, and if we're looking at registered crime, you would expect if there are barriers raised and, and people are deterred, members are deterred from committing crimes, there would be a decrease in registered crime uh, for, for the outlaw bikers in the Netherlands. However, given that our, uh, our measure of crime is, is officially registered crime, uh, the increased law enforcement focus and, and zero tolerance that is part and partial of the whole of government approach uh, could also lead to an increase in, in the registered crime of, uh, of the Dutch outlaw bikers. And on a, on a more general note, uh, we should be conscious when, when using official data that it's all, always an interaction between system behavior and, and a subject behavior. And in this case, it's the behavior of the law enforcement agencies that are uh, applying the whole of government approach and the outlaw bikers themselves. Um, and basically, since the whole of government approach is all about a focus on bikers and a zero tolerance, uh, you could say that the law enforcement agencies are increasing their attention uh, for, uh, towards outlaw bikers and we're interested in, in what the response of the outlaw bikers will be. Um, and there are different scenarios there uh, uh, depicted here by the, um, by the boxes in the, in the cross tab. Uh, and basically, if we're looking at an increase uh, on the, on the right-hand side, if we're looking at an increase of attention from law enforcement agencies, uh, it, the outlaw bikers could uh, increase their, their criminal behavior. Then we would see a rise in, in uh, uh, officially registered crime. Uh, they could also uh, not change their criminal behavior. And then the increased attention would also lead to an increase in registered crime. Or they could decrease being deterred or being uh, uh, because of the barriers, decrease their, their criminal behavior or their behavior of interest. And then 
multiple uh, scenarios are uh, possible uh, looking at the officially registered crime. If the decrease in actual behavior uh, is, is offset by the increase in attention, there might uh, be a decrease or an increase in the, uh, in the officially uh, registered crime rates. So just leave it at that there's an interaction between um, law enforcement agency behavior and the behavior of outlaw bikers. And given that we're using officially registered crime, uh, we uh, need to be aware of, of that interaction going on. And it is useful uh, for interpreting our uh, results. Okay, since we're uh, trying to measure the effects of the whole of government approach that was implemented in 2012, uh, we use a sample of over 1,500 police-identified Dutch OMCG members and nearly 500 police-identified support club members that were registered as such by the police between 2010 and 2015. Um, to reconstruct their criminal careers, we use abstract from the judicial documentation system, which basically has uh, all criminal cases registered uh, at the public prosecutor's office and we use only those cases that end in a guilty verdict, uh, a prosecutorial, uh, prosecutorial transaction or a prosecutorial waiver for policy reasons, uh, and, and thereby excluding technical waivers for lack of evidence, uh, dismissal of all charges and, and not guilty verdicts. Uh, and we, uh, as uh, OMCGs, are known for their violent behavior and are suspected for their engagement in organized crime. We focus here especially on violence and organized crime. Uh, and as a comparison uh, 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 offense, we also uh, look at traffic offenses. Uh, and we also, when looking at the effects of the whole of government approach, we uh, control for time on the streets uh, because Part of the effect of the whole of government approach and especially the zero tolerance, um, it could be that more and more bikers are ending up incarcerated. And that would not, that would change their behavior, but through a different uh, uh, means than by raising barriers or by deterring them from, from that behavior that would basically make it impossible. So we're controlling for time on the streets. And that means that if we find any effect, that effect is not caused by incarceration in, in our uh, results. Um, just some basic descriptions on, on, the, on the sample. Uh, the, the bikers we're looking at, they're in their 30s and 40s, some of them in their, in their 50s. They're members of uh, one uh, of the 13 known biker gangs. In, in the Netherlands at the time of the sample and their support club. So they include the Hells Angels and their support clubs, uh, the Red Devils and the Red and White crew, for example, but also Satudara, Bandidos, No Surrender. Um, there's uh, ample uh, of, of criminal behavior going on uh, in these clubs and, and these bikers um, and uh, about 20% of the offenses registered for these bikers uh, is, is categorized as, as organized crime. Uh, so there's uh, uh, much going on there. Uh, so it becomes interesting to see whether the whole of government approach, the implementation of the whole of government approach actually had an effect on that criminal behavior. Um, we do so by uh, analyzing the criminal careers using interrupted time series analysis, which is basically a regression discontinuity design, um, which, in which we estimate the uh, level and the slope 
of the overall criminal behavior in the outlaw biker population in the pretreatment period, so before 2012, and then uh, allow for regression discontinuity in the post-treatment period and uh, beta two and beta three uh, um, uh, represent the change in, in level and the change in the slope of the criminal trajectory of the outlaw biker population uh, as uh, uh, following the, the implementation of the um, the treatment, which is here the, uh, the uh, implementation of the whole of government approach. Uh, there are some points to consider. Uh, there should be a clear demarcation of the intervention, which is important in this case. The whole of government approach was officially started in 2012, but you could argue whether uh, uh, some municipalities or, or police forces weren't already focusing on, on bikers. Uh, we need sufficient time points and unequal distribution. Uh, we need to control for non-stationarity and autocorrelation. And I can tell you uh, that we did that using, uh, using the, uh, the ITSA uh, uh, models in, in STATA. Um, and one point to consider is also uh, interesting is that we need to control for time varying confounders. Um, so we can check that and we have done that if there are any time varying confounders, but a more stronger design than, than the one presented here would be uh, one that actually has a, a comparison group. And I'll get back to that uh, at the end, of the, uh, the end of the talk. Okay, now for the results. Uh, here you see uh, for violent crime and, and organized crime, uh, two figures. Again, the, uh, the white part of the figure is the pre-treatment period. So the period uh, before the implementation of the whole of government approach. And the blue part of each figure represents the period after the implementation of the whole of government approach. Uh, the dots represent the observed criminal behavior for the outlaw biker population, and the dotted line represents uh, the estimated trend uh, based on the pretreatment uh, period. And this is just a way to visualize, to, to first get a, a, a feeling of, is, is there any change going on? Might there be significant changes in the, uh, in the behavior of the outlaw bikers uh, after the implementation of the whole of government approach. And we see for, for violence, uh, there's actually not much going on, it seems, uh, but for organized crime, we see that the observed values in the uh, post-treatment period, in the period after 2012, after the implementation of the whole of government approach, are uh, uh, almost uh, all below uh, the estimated uh, trend based on the pretreatment period, which is a first indication that there is actually a decline going on. Uh, we tested whether the, uh, uh, the um, decline was significant. We find no significant effect for, for violence. So the post-treatment trend doesn't differ from uh, significantly from the pretreatment trend, uh, but we do find a significant decline in uh, the uh, uh, the organized crime rate in the in the biker population after the implementation of the whole of government approach. If we break that down for uh, OMCG members or so members of the uh, the uh, the outlaw biker clubs and members of the support clubs, 
we find that the change in organized crime, uh, the decrease in organized crime is, is mostly driven by OMCG members and not so for support club members. And this is interesting uh, um, uh, to consider. It seems that the whole of government approach is uh, affecting the behavior of OMCG members, but not so much the behavior of, of support club members. And then traffic offenses, if we look for traffic offenses, and these are traffic crimes, so this is drunk driving, unassured driving, hit and run accidents, stuff like that, we see uh, a slight increase in the overall uh, level of traffic crimes, and that increase is uh, significant, so we see a, a discontinuity in the trend of traffic crimes comparing pre-treatment and post-treatment periods, and uh, unlike the, uh, the, the, the change in the trend in, in organized crime, the change in traffic crime seems to be uh, driven by the support club members who, after the implementation of the whole of government approach, are um, increasingly convicted for traffic crimes. And it, this would suggest, at least this is how we interpret it, uh, given that it's unlikely that the support club members have actually changed their behavior and are now committing more traffic crimes as a result of the whole of government approach. Uh, we interpret this finding as uh, resulting from net widening and increased intention, uh, attention uh, from law enforcement agencies to also the members of uh, support clubs. As a means of a validity check, as I said, we need to control for time varying confounders. Uh, since we're looking at the whole population. And in theory, there could be something happening in, in or around 2012 that is causing uh, these, these differences, these observed differences in the crime rates, which is causing organized crime to go down. Um, and that could be something else than the whole of government approach. So we looked at the uh, national data for the Netherlands and we uh, plotted again in the, in the same manner on the, on the bottom row of these uh, figures of, the, of this slide. Uh, we plotted the organized crime rate for the entire Dutch population. And we see that there is a slight decline going on in organized crime for the Dutch population as a whole. Uh, but if we break it down into different types of organized crime, if we're looking at drug crime or uh, uh, firearm violations, we see that for the, the uh, total Dutch population, the decline is driven by uh, a decline in firearms violations and not so much by a decline in, in drug, uh, uh, drug offenses. Uh, while for the bikers, uh, we see there's a, a clear decline in, in especially drug offenses and not so much for the firearms violations. So this suggests that the decrease that we're seeing uh, in, in the bikers is actually the effect of the implementation of the whole of government approach and not uh, confounded by any uh, national changes in the rates of these types of crimes. So to conclude, um, we conclude that there is no effect of the whole of government approach on outlaw biker violence. Uh, we see no clear uh, discontinuity in the trend of violence. Uh, however, 
um, uh, keeping in mind the interaction between system behavior and, and subject behavior, uh, given the increase of law enforcement detention, um, uh, no effect, the, the, the same type of trend uh, would likely mean that the outlaw bikers are indeed decreasing their violent behavior, but that the decrease is offset by the increase in law enforcement detention. So that's why I, I put no effect between brackets there. Um, we find a gradual decrease in organized crime, which is accounted for by OMCG members and not so much by support club members. In fact, support club members show an increase, an increasing trend during the uh, post hold of, hold of government uh, period. Um, and the decrease in outlaw biker drug crime is steeper than that of the national trend. And that seems to point at the effect that the whole of government has indeed successfully raised barriers or has deterred outlaw bikers from committing these types of crimes. Uh, or, uh, and uh, that is in, in red there, this is a, a, a big or or a big uh, um, question mark, uh, given that we're talking about effects. Could it be that uh, as a response to the whole of government approach, outlaw bikers increase their club discipline, uh, uh, increase their uh, adherence to the code of silence, making uh, the, uh, the prosecution of outlaw bikers uh, increasingly difficult, or perhaps OMCG members have started to delegate uh, high risk uh, drug crimes more and more to support club members. Um, we cannot be sure what's going on, uh, but we do see a decrease in organized crime for OMCG members uh, following the implementation of the whole of government approach. Uh, and as I said, we see a gradual increase in traffic crimes, which we uh, uh, um, think is the result for, for, uh, from uh, results from net widening and increased law enforcement attention to uh, support club members. Um, some ideas for future research. This is only the first attempt to quantitatively estimate the effects of government policies against outlaw bikers. Um, uh, we could study the effects of, of other interventions, the civil bans, for uh, example, in the Netherlands, which are quite demarcated. It's actually a judicial uh, ruling. And then there's a civil ban, which is probably uh, more demarcated than the, uh, the whole of government approach, uh, but also other types of interventions in other countries uh, might be suitable uh, for these types of analysis. Uh, we would also, also like to strengthen the research design by adding a comparison group. Um, and for example, by including groups in our analysis outside the boundaries of the intervention, so not motorcycle clubs, but perhaps the boxing clubs or brotherhoods that at this point fall outside, or at least in 2012, uh, uh, fell uh, outside of the, uh, the range of the whole of government approach. Um, in, in other jurisdictions, maybe uh, interstate differences, in, in, in policy implementation uh, can be used to strengthen uh, the research design even more. Um, plans for future research. Uh, we are also looking into changes in criminal networks as a response to uh, implementation of the whole of government approach, where do we see actually differences occurring in the way that outlaw bikers are, are co-offending. Uh, and as Tone said, uh, one way to approach this could also be uh, from a, a qualitative uh, view, actually asking members about their experience with the whole of government approach and, and see how they experience the effects of this approach 
in their daily lives and their uh, criminal endeavors. So this was my talk for today. Um, the article uh, that uh, I presented today that was written by uh, Christian Clement and myself has actually appeared in the European Journal and I would be happy to send you a copy if you're interested. Thank you very much. Great, thank you, uh, Arian and, and Tim before that um, for two really interesting presentations. I have um, loads of questions myself, um, but obviously you want to open it up to everybody else. So just a reminder to people that uh, to post their questions in the Q&A and when we finish uh, Tim's next presentation, we'll, we'll return to those. Um, otherwise, you're going to have to hear me um, ask all the questions. Uh, so our final speaker is Tim Cubitt. Uh, Tim is a principal <coughs> research analyst at the AIC Serious and Organised Crime Research Lab, uh, and Tim will be presenting on predicting high harm offending using machine learning and application to Australian OMCGs. Uh, thank you, Tim, and over to you. Great. Thanks, Anthony. Um, can I just make sure everyone can see my slides there? Awesome. Um, so my name's Timothy Cubitt. I'm, uh, as Anthony said, I work in the Serious and Organised Crime Research Lab at the Australian Institute of Criminology. Um, for the last few years, the lab has been producing uh, research into outlaw motorcycle gangs in a range of areas. Um, if you're interested in this research, um, in particular organisational structure and culture of OMCGs, I'd really encourage you to uh, have a look at my colleagues' presentations, Chris Dowling, and Isabella Vos, who were in the previous session, but I believe they're online. Um, I won't be speaking on those topics. I'll be talking about something slightly different, um, but please do, do, do go and check those out if you want to. Um, so this research, uh, we um, endeavored to predict high harm offending by outlaw motorcycle gang members. Um, it was really built on a body of research uh, that, uh, like I said, the lab has undertaken over the last few years, but in particular in response to um, emerging research saying that um, something that we thematically kind of knew, um, outlaw motorcycle gang members have a proclivity for violence. So um, prior research by, um, by other members of the lab uh, found that you know, one in four OMCG members had been apprehended for a recent violent offence um, among drug supply, ongoing criminal enterprise offences. Um, my colleague Bella uh, earlier presented on the trajectory of offending among different cohorts of OMCG members, but particularly the younger cohorts, those, um, those uh, uh, born between 1989 and 1993, uh, by the age of 24, uh, about 58% of them had at least one violent offence. So we were seeing that there was quite a bit of violence among OMCG members. So um, what did we want to do? We wanted to see if we could predict with any kind of uh, confidence high harm offending by OMCG members. So this research was situated in um, New South Wales in Australia. Uh, New South Wales uh, has one of the largest policing organisations in the world. Um, and uh, in response to increasing gang violence around 2010, they established um, a strike force by the name of Raptor. Um, this strike force had the express intention of uh, targeting and disrupting OMCG offending. So uh, keeping in mind that was around 2010, our research begins a little bit after that, but it'll be important when I come to it a little bit later on. So in terms of data, we wanted to use, you know, when, when you're taking a machine learning approach, you want to use as much data as humanly possible. So um, relevant data, I should say. So recorded criminal history was extremely important. Um, 
This included offence types, dates, uh, and the uh, legal action taken as the outcome of that offence. Um, demographic details of the offenders were also included. Really pivotally, we had access to custodial episodes data. Um, that was the dates of entry into and exits from custody for the members in the sample. And additionally, uh, the gangs to which these individuals were affiliated and their ranks as well. Um, all of these were included in uh, the sample. So um, what was featured in the data? Overall, we had 5,537 individuals that were represented in this data, all of whom were affiliated with an OMCG between January 1998 and February 2020. Um, these individuals were responsible for 143,497 offences across this time period. Um, the data set consisted of uh, three, a, a little over 3,500 members of OMCGs and uh, 1,970 associates. So individuals that weren't yet patched members, um, but at some point across this time period uh, were intending to become members. Um, attributed to each of these individuals were 130 variables. Um, they range from the demographics of individuals, um, gang membership, criminal offences, offence types. Uh, we also had some spatial variables, such as the location of the offence down to the region, uh, policing region, um, whether the individual travelled to offend, uh, and the location type at which the offence occurred. So things like licensed venues, um, public places, uh, street places, um, things like this. So for this specific sample, we wanted to facilitate recency for the findings. Uh, as a result, we uh, limited, limited the sample to individuals that had committed an offence within the past five years. Um, this reduced the sample down to 2,246 OMCG members. Um, we separated um, individuals that weren't members and also um, individuals that were deceased out of the data set. Um, and then we generated another variable um, out of the Western Australian Crime Harm Index. So Crime Harm Indices uh, provide a value for each individual offence type. Um, that value represents the amount of harm that offence produced uh, to the community. So for example, a um, serious assault um, is quite clearly um, producing more harm than a uh, speeding offence. So we would expect that a serious assault would have a higher value uh, in the Western Australian Crime Harm Index, and indeed it does. Um, the important part of this, and this relates to having custodial episodes data, um, is that because um, there was a higher rate of offending and incarceration among these groups, we needed to take opportunity to offend into account. Um, for example, if a member's incarcerated for two out of five years, uh, their opportunity to offend is less than a member that's been uh, free in the community over that same time period. So analytically, we needed to have this reflected among the amount of harm produced by the offences in this sample. Um, we did this by taking the Western Australian Crime Harm Index, um, or call it the WATCHI from now on, um, and we weighted it by the opportunity that an individual had to offend based on the proportion of time that they spent in the community across that time period. Um, the intention of this research was to consider if we could uh, develop a risk assessment um, for uh, high harm offending among uh, OMCG members. And when I talk about high harm offending, what I'm talking about is uh, the offences that featured in the top 10% of the watchy. So of these 2,246 members, 451 had committed a high harm offence across the most uh, recent five years. 
Um, the vast majority of these were serious assault offences. Um, however, we did see aggravated robbery, um, commercial quantities of drugs being dealt, um, property damage by fire and explosion. So um, if you're familiar with OMCG literature, this should probably be no surprise as to what we found um, were the rates of high harm offences among this group. Importantly, it did facilitate the analysis that we wanted to apply. Um, so we introduced a random forest. Random forest is a relatively straightforward machine learning, uh, it's an ensemble machine learning technique. Um, uh, for um, speed of description, you could think it's a logistic regression on steroids and you probably get about halfway towards understanding the random forest. Um, it's a really good technique for understanding um, high dimensional data. So we had 130 uh, variables in this data. It was a very wide data set. Um, and 130 features attributed to each individual is a lot of information. The random forest is very good at processing that information and finding uh, non-linear interactions between uh, features in the data. So the random forest was employed featuring those 130 variables and the model successfully identified 91.4% of high harm offending in the test set. So when you train the random forest algorithm, uh, you then expose it to a test set and ask it to uh, predict which individuals would commit an instance of high harm offending. It successfully did that 91.4% of the time as indicated by a receiver operating characteristic curve. Um, we uh, further interrog interrogated that using a confusion matrix and that rate held up. Um, it was marginally better at uh, classifying individuals that would not commit a high harm offence than those that would. Um, however, the rate of uh, prediction was very, very strong. So what was important in making these predictions? Uh, weighted harm, as I mentioned, was a really important predictor. And I believe that taking the opportunity to um, weight the uh, harm index by opportunity was important in this. Um, prior assault, uh, serious assault was important. Um, generally speaking, we know um, prior uh, behaviour of the same type is predictive of uh, that type of behaviour in the future um, across a range of areas in criminology, that was reflected here as well uh, with the serious assault um, resulting in an injury variable. But I wanted to also point out that um, there was uh, a uh, spatial uh, variable that was quite important. That was um, members with a proclivity for offending in public places were quite predictive of a subsequent high harm offence. But these offense, these uh, variables didn't function as they first appeared. Um, the number of prior offences that was most associated with the high harm offence was quite low. So individuals that had committed uh, fewer than 10 uh, prior offences were quite strongly associated with a high harm offence. Um, after that, uh, the effect dropped off a little bit. Um, when we then look at the weighted prior harm score for those, um, those offences. Um, in aggregate, uh, the amount of harm produced by prior, prior offences that was most associated with a subsequent high harm offence was quite low again. So we had members that were committing relatively few offences uh, that were comparatively low in harm uh, being most associated with a high harm offence. To have a better look at that, we had a look at the mean harm produced by prior offences. And again, the mean harm was relatively low. So when offences were committed uh, prior to a high harm offence, they were relatively uh, and comparatively lower in harm. 
And finally, um, it was younger members uh, that were um, most associated with high harm offences, but not the youngest. Um, late 20s, early 30s um, were most associated with a high harm offence. And this uh, then diminished towards uh, 40 years of age and, and onward. So what we then saw were uh, limited criminal histories uh, producing um, comparatively uh, lower amount of harm uh, from their prior offences in the community and being relatively young was quite associated with a high harm offence. And what we are attributing this to as well is a policing effect, essentially. Um, members that have an extensive criminal history, um, that um, have a history of quite um, public offences that have attracted the attention of police, appear to be policed quite heavily, um, particularly by Strike Force Raptor, leaving the younger uh, members with a comparatively limited criminal history um, to commit higher harm offences or to have the opportunities to commit higher harm offences. Um, so it was possible uh, with the data set that we had available to, um, to predict high harm offending among the sample. Um, it was most associated with uh, a limited criminal history, however, often featuring uh, violent offences. And we do attribute this to uh, at least partially a policing effect, limiting the opportunity to offend among members that are particularly unknown to the police. Um, but really importantly, um, a machine learning approach was effective um, in, this, uh, in this study and with this type of data. Um, personally, I, I would expect to see um, more, uh, more machine learning techniques used in this field uh, with access to these type of data, although I might be biased in saying that um, because I think that um, it was quite an effective approach. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Tim. Um, I am going to open the floor to questions. There aren't any that I can see in the Q&A at the moment. Um, so I'm going to use the chair's privilege to ask a question. Um, and I'm going to start with um, Tim and Ariane, um, obviously, because I know a little bit about Tim's um, project, but um, it's a question for all three of you, actually. And I'm, I'm really interested in knowing um, about the engagement with, with law enforcement around the research that you've been doing in the Netherlands. Um, uh, one, I guess, a question of sort of how um, they've helped shape the work, but also how they've engaged or, or received the research that you've been doing, um, or law enforcement and government more, more broadly, um, given, you know, I imagine it's similar to, to the Netherlands, uh, sorry, sorry, similar to Australia, and there's been a fairly significant investment um, uh, by government in, in the response to OMCG. So just, yeah, just interested in your, your comments about that. Yeah, if I, if I can reflect a little bit on that, I think the Netherlands, but in the Netherlands, as uh, um, Dutch government and police, pretty much very engaged. I feel in 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 our research, but also criminological research in general. There's a quite a good and, and short link between academia and uh, the police and the government. Um, uh, that's also, I think, why especially Ion is research, but also Sharky has got a very large it's, it's able to to build on a very large data set which was provided by the police obviously so and and also vice versa i think we um present our research to to the government and i think it's well received but more in general the link is quite i would say quite good in 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 uh, in the netherlands um yeah thanks yeah uh, i can only attest to that 
we, we are happy to uh, have a good collaboration with, uh, with law enforcement. Um, Dutch criminologists have been accused of focusing their research too much on the data that uh, law enforcement is providing them, introducing all these types of biases. Um, and I, I think it is a good thing that that Teun and, and, and Schauke are now uh, also uh, making an effort to talk to the uh, to the members of these OPCGs themselves. Um, that we are using police data to uh, uh, address this problem doesn't necessarily mean that we share the law enforcement view of these OMCGs and we have been critical of these law enforcement views in the past based on our data. Uh, so I hope that with our research we can contribute to the societal discussion uh, uh, that's going on in the Netherlands and elsewhere I guess on, on how to deal with these uh, OMCGs and, and the, the problems that are uh, apparently surrounding the uh, the outlaw biker scene. Thanks, Aaron. Um Tim, do you want to add, is there anything you want to add before I hand this? A couple of questions popped up. So do you want to, anything you want to contribute to that? Uh, no, I think um, I mean, in terms of uh, our relationship in Australia, it's, it's been quite strong there's been obviously concerted efforts to um to uh tackle and disrupt um OMG activity in australia but in terms of evaluating um those approaches um you know provision of data and and reception of kind of research i think we found um law enforcement agencies to be quite open um and and to the extent that um we've had some really productive discussions regarding the um nature of our research. So um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, from my perspective, been quite positive. Okay. Thanks, Tim. Um, the first, the next question in the chat is is actually to Arian. Um, uh, Chris Dowling has asked, I may have missed it, but do you have any information on member rank within the OMCGs you examined? Uh, and if so, I wonder if there's scope for research looking at the impact of the whole of government approach on the those at different ranks and specifically whether there is a displacement of organised crime offending in particular to lower ranks. Yeah, thanks, uh, David. We do have that information. Uh, we didn't use it in our analysis, um, basically because of, of low numbers. Uh, so we decided uh, instead of rank to make the distinction between OMCG members and support club members. Uh, but it would be worthwhile looking into uh, whether we see a different effect for uh, people of different ranks. Uh, we did do an extra analysis based on, on age in, in the article. And I, I think there, uh, I would suspect, uh, I, I would need to check, but I would suspect there would be a, a, a quite a strong correlation between age and, and rank in these uh, OMCGs. Uh, but it's, it's something that we can do and that we have information on. Um, and uh, also, I, I didn't talk about it, but I, I, I touched upon it briefly, uh, given that we're also looking at uh, ways to measure changes in the co-offending uh, network structure. Now we're using just individual criminal career data, but we have a data set that is actually a co-offending data set, which allows us to model the, the, the co-offending networks. And that data set also has information on, on uh, officer rank within the clubs. 
So we, we have some additional work ahead of us in that respect. And I continue to be envious of the uh, sheer volume and quality of data that you have over in the Netherlands. Um, uh, there is another question, uh, and I think it's to everyone. Um, it's from Anasagi. Um, uh, I wonder if the label of OMCGs makes them somewhat easier to identify and therefore easier to store data on them and eventually easier to study them. Uh, I wonder in both cases of Netherlands and in Australia, what happens in, in cases of less identifiable organised crime groups uh, with secret or somewhat secret groups um, in terms of both responses from law enforcement um, and to data analytics? I'm happy to uh, to start uh, 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 reflecting on this on this good question. Of course, indeed, um, it makes it lots uh, way more easier if because in the, in the end, or from the starting point, is OMCGs is not a label designed by researchers. In in, in most of the countries, it's, it's a label used by the Dutch government. So if the Dutch of the, the Dutch government, international governments. So if governments start to use a label and they stick it to a number of groups and then start to actually investigate, investigate groups, it's obvious that you're gonna, well, gather data from, from the groups that you in first place label. So of course it's easy to store data on them and also easier to study them. This is also the case because the visibility of this of this of this of the game by means of the colors, for instance, is also part of something problematized by the government because their visibility is often used as the police uh, uh, describes as a measure of intimidating other people or other criminals or civilians so this the visibility of this outer mode segment is also part of the problem and um, it doesn't and of course it doesn't mean that at least in the dutch uh, context police public prosecution services are also focusing on criminal organizations that are not part of uh, a, a visible outlaw motorcycle gang. Obviously, the police and other countries or other organizations also focusing on, on uh, uh, other types of criminals or, or, or other groups. Uh, and they are also using, especially in the Netherlands, I can tell, uh, a multi-agency approach, again, to, to not only prosecute th these criminals, but also look for other ways uh, by cooperating with other partners, with the non-state actors, state actors, for instance, the tax service, um, but also private organizations to make sure that besides prosecuting criminals, also it becomes more or difficult, more difficult for these, these future criminals to actually uh, be involved in crime. For instance, when it comes to money laundering, in the Netherlands, we have a very, well, uh, 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 a very good cooperation with banks also. Um, and last point is that re in recent times, there's a new development that in the Netherlands, they're currently building a very, well, a large new organization, which is called the multidisciplinary um, uh, um, uh, team, where a lot of uh, uh, all, the, all the most important state actors are actually coming together within a building, uh, within a new organization to exchange data they have in order to be uh, and uh, to, to in order to gain knowledge and to to yeah gain knowledge on the criminal networks in the Netherlands. So this is a new development, and it's um, yeah it's it's quite a big thing now in the Netherlands. So it, in terms of data analytics, that will definitely uh, bring us some new data. That's I can, a long um, answer. Probably. Sorry. <laughs> I can add a little bit to that um, as well uh, in terms of the analytics. It, it is a it's a um, it's a good question. I mean, ultimately, when it comes to less identifiable 
groups um, you, you don't know what you don't know until you know that so um, uh, in terms of the analytics that we used in the study that I presented just now um, it was a supervised learning task so we knew what the outcome was that we were looking for and we knew the group that we were looking for it in um, in terms of subgroups um, I mean I mean in terms of those uh, supervised learning models we're trying to find what the characteristics of these groups are in terms of certain outcomes and, and how uh, they become more identifiable um, based on those characteristics. But in, in the case of um, you know, less identifiable groups or um, somewhat secret groups, it would ultimately not be um, a learning algorithm um, that we would apply. Um, certainly not a supervised learning algorithm. We'd be looking more at... Um, kind of a, uh, an approach that identified latent groups or clusters among data that we might not be able to identify uh, or have identified previously. So um, from a machine learning um, perspective, if that might be a k-means clustering algorithm that uh, might be better, uh, better suited to discerning kind of iteratively uh, latent clusters among groups. So I think that if this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of approach um, in terms of the data that you have accessible. It's about, um, from my perspective, picking the right analytical approach uh, to suit the task. And for this task, it was supervised learning for something like um, a, uh, a less identifiable set of groups among a certain data set. You might look to use a, um, an unsupervised uh, clustering algorithm or something along those lines. Thanks, Tim. And, and Tim, now, Tim, I was reflecting on a comment you made in your presentation about uh, some of the challenges from the, the, the barriers raised around collecting intelligence because of not being able to as easily identify um, OMCG members. So actually, even in some respects, it's changing and, and perhaps yeah, an unintended consequence is, is somewhat um, it, the difficulty now in collecting intelligence. Um, and conversations we've had with law enforcement in Australia about the fact that there's, there's many members of their strike forces that have never seen an outlaw motorcycle gang member in the way that older older police officers might have because they just don't wear color they can't wear colors and they might not ride bikes and they just look different so um yeah interesting that you know perhaps that that the situation of being able to easily identify them might change uh we do have uh, another question which i i gather is also for um Aaron and tim which is uh i was wondering if the whole of government uh, approach caused the omcgs to respond or backlash to the measures that were were taken uh See, uh, I muted himself, so I guess I'll uh, <laughs> uh, try to, to start giving an answer. Uh, yeah, it depends on, on what type of response you mean. Uh, of course, uh, OMCGs are responding to, to these measures, although I have to say that wasn't really my focus point in my research. That is, in fact, what we are now asking for uh, in, our, uh, in our interviews with these members. Um, so it, it, it all depends on, on what type of response you mean i mean you see a, a legal response for instance in the sense that a lot of these outlaw motorcycle gangs are really fighting uh, on a legal way in a legal way uh, uh, starting a legal fight against the government in terms of uh, um, well showing trying to show the dutch government that the the the, the, the approach is going too far and it's um, not realistic and and so in that sense you see a legal response um, and another response that you see from, well, I read it from openly available policy documentation, which I referred to already in my final sheet, is that members tend to 
uh, well, stopped wearing their colors, also uh, um, influenced by the recent civil bans, and they become less visible in the public domain and also less visible online. So uh, as long as since clubhouses have been closed, members will still come together on a recent uh, notice, but then will, they will do it uh, at home or like in a, uh, in their in a in private business or something like that. So in this way, they they do response in in in, in making sure that they're still able to come together, etc. Um, um, so, but yeah, that's a, it's a quite a general general question, and I hope to for for next year, I hope to give a well to give a more uh, um, uh, a, a better answer in terms because of actually interviewing the members on how they respond to this to the measures taken. Yeah, Tony, if, if I can add to that, one of the responses that we've seen, especially in response to the to the civil bans, I guess there are two two types of responses. Uh, one, a more general response is that, that we've seen a, a fragmentation of the Dutch OMCG scene. So the big clubs are being banned and we see all these little clubs uh, yeah. popping up like, like mushrooms everywhere. Um, they're... Um, their lifespan is not as long as the original clubs. So there's uh, the dynamic has uh, increased in the OMCG scene. Uh, so that remains to be seen how many of these new clubs will, will actually survive. Um, uh, and of course, there are, are legal actions in the courtroom. Uh, but what we've also seen, and, and I, I could refer to, uh, to one OMCG who, uh, that was established while, uh, a for, by a former member of the Dutch Hells Angels, while he was actually uh, in prison serving time for uh, being part of a criminal organization. He has now um, established an, a new OMCG, which in terms of colors and in terms of logo, very much uh, resembles uh, the Hells Angels in, in outward appearance. Um, but given that the Hells Angels are, are banned, um, the, these members are, are seeking the boundaries of what is possible given these bans. And I think one of the, the challenges for, for the uh, Dutch law enforcement will be to see uh, how far these civil bans will actually carry uh, in, in terms of prohibiting uh, people from establishing new OMCGs under new names with similar colors and similar behavior, uh, and whether these civil bans will actually affect that kind of behavior and, and be able to prevent uh, former members from, from banned OMCGs from, from taking such actions. Excellent. Thank you. Um, uh, really interesting. It's, uh... Uh, the, the the changing kind of um, group or landscape of, of OMCGs in in uh, the Netherlands is is interesting. I don't think we've seen necessarily the same um, change in kind of the organisational structure in Australia yet. But it's um, so it's kind of uh, yeah, interesting to hear how that that sort of response is is taking place. Um, we have one last question. I think before we run out of um, time, um, so we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, and the question is, again, I think it's for, for everyone, um, although I, I suspect I know what Tim's answer will be, um, which is how far are the football hooligans groups taken into your research? Um, in my personal experience, the lines between OMCGs and football hooligans are very short. Uh, some are members of both groups. Uh, where do you draw the line between OMCGs and, and other groups? I, I, I guess for the data set that, that we are using, 
um, that that line is drawn by the police in the sense that people must show visible signs that, that are perceived by the police uh, uh, of being an OMCG member. Uh, so they have to wear colors or, or visit closed club meetings uh, and regularly do so. Um, there is some connection between hooligan firms and, and certain OMCGs in the Netherlands as well. Um, and it might be that as, as Schauke was uh, talking and uh, in, in the, the, uh, the former session about the new generation of OMCG members, um, uh, it might be that that new generation is coming from uh, groups like hooligan firms that uh, are now entering um, the OMCG scene and are especially recruited for their shown uh, proclivity for, for violent behavior. Um, um, at this point, however, we, we draw the line by those that are identified, at least in our research, by those that are identified as uh, members of the OMCG or OMCG support clubs, uh, and not so much by those that might be affiliated with these clubs on a, on a lower level, uh, being befriended hooligan firms or, or whatsoever. Uh, so that's where we draw the line at this point, but it's, it, it is interesting and it also uh, um, is something that is, uh, is investigated by the, by the Dutch police, whether there are links and what the extent of these links are uh, between certain uh, uh, hooligan firms and, and OMCGs. Yeah, I don't, I don't have much to add uh, to this, especially because I didn't really use uh, registered data from, from the members themselves. I know indeed, as, as Bayon already uh, said at the end of his answer, that uh, the Dutch government is indeed focusing, at least since 2012, uh, focusing, it was in fact a focal point, one of the eight focal points to also focus on the link between OMCGs and football uh, hooligans uh, uh, firm. So uh, indeed, it's it's um, uh, it's something that the police is also focusing on. Tim, do you want to have the, the final word? Uh, yeah, I can um, tackle this from a perspective. Which I suspect that we do not have the uh, football hooligan culture that my uh, colleagues on the panel might. Um, but uh, the way that we identified OMCG members in our data set was through uh, the law enforcement um, intelligence cycle. So it, um, it was uh, an officer would identify or come across an OMCG member, perhaps wearing colors, um, note them down, and that needed to be independently verified by another law enforcement officer, at which point they could be recorded as uh, affiliated with an outlaw motorcycle gang. Um, these groups were distinct from other gangs uh, as far as um, our data represented. And um, in terms of football, Football hooligans. There was uh, we we didn't identify any overlap there. Brilliant. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Jim, and thanks, Tim and Owen. Um, clearly, my cats and my children are clambering to get into the room, so I think it's probably a good time to. I'm fending them off, so it's a good time to draw to a close. I think we're perfectly on time. So, um, so thank you to the the three speakers for three very interesting presentations, uh, and thank you to everyone who's uh, attended this session. And and I hope you enjoy. Uh, the rest of this conference. So have a good evening or a good day, depending on where you are. Thanks for everyone.
Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.